Um, I don't have time to go back and, and you know, um, refresh your memory on all of it, but of course the entire book of James is talking about an active faith. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Um, but then on, on top of that, it's the idea of perfection or maturity as a Christian. We ought, to, we ought to be moving toward that perfection. We ought to be moving toward that maturity. And James talks about so many different things that uh, immature Christians do. And he gets on them over and over and over. He gets on us over and over and over for doing these things that immature or imperfect Christians do. And uh, that's honestly, it's a lot of what, what he addresses in this entire book. And of course, uh, all of it is, is hinging on faith. Um, uh, faith proves itself by its works. Faith is going to control its tongue. Faith is going to have wisdom. Uh, we talked last time about the, the uh, godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom, and there's a huge difference there. We read those in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, and then he moves into uh, James chapter 4 and kind of moves into another topic uh, that really is a result of faith um, when you follow it. But let's read James chapter 4, uh, starting there in verse number 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even, a, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Now, James uses some pretty strong language here. Verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses. He says, uh, verse number 8, you sinners, you double-minded. He's, he's, he's really pinpointing a lot of the issues here. Uh, but James really has his readers repeatedly test their Christianity against truth. And we've looked at all of that. He doesn't let us get by with having a faith, quote-unquote, that does not produce holiness, right? Your faith, if you say you have faith, it ought to be moving you toward works, toward living for Christ, toward action, toward holiness. In every chapter, he condemned the type of faith that does not move us toward holiness. And we've, we've looked at all of those. But he did it in chapter 1, he did it in chapter 2, he did it in chapter 3, he does it again here in chapter 4. But James starts out with some pretty strong words here. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And he uses the word lust and lusts several times. And I think a lot of times we uh, think of lust as being related to sexual things. And of course, that certainly is part of it, uh, like adultery. But it's actually a lot more than just that. Speaking broadly, lust is a strong desire or a craving. That's what lust is. And that can be for anything. That can, that can be a strong desire for anything. It can be for pleasure. It can be for things that are forbidden. It can be th for things that may not even necessarily be bad but are misplaced because they're stronger. Those desires are stronger than the desires to live for the Lord. So 
Lust here is paired with envy. He says in verse number five, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Lust is when I strongly desire something. That's what lust is. Envy is when I strongly desire something that somebody else has. When he put both of those together, this envious lust, really, that he's talking about there in verse number five, uh, that strongly desires the pleasures we see others have results in some action on our part. And that's the action that he talks about there in James chapter 4. But I believe the key to this entire passage is found in verse number 4 when he says, The adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. This is the culmination of all the lust, all the desire, all the, the strong want. It's essentially worldliness. What James is describing in the first six verses is worldly Christianity. He's talking to Christians. So he's not getting on people who don't know Jesus Christ. He's talking to Christians. And so there's no other way to describe it than to say that these are worldly Christians that he's talking to. And by the way, worldly Christianity is not just characterized by outside things, like a love for the world's fashions, like a love for the world's entertainment. That's a lot of times what we associate with worldliness, and for good reason. It, it, it is definitely worldliness when you want to be like the world in the way that it looks and acts and talks and all of that other stuff. In verse 6 through 10, James gives us the solution or the cure to this problem of worldliness. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, next week, maybe even the week after as we move through this passage. We're going to take some time to talk about spiritual adultery and its cure. Spiritual adultery and its cure. And the first thing that we find here, as, as I mentioned in those first six verses, is the description of worldliness. And there's so much here that James talks about, really, when you start to dive into it, and that's what we want to do tonight. So keep your finger there in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be working through this passage, but I'm going to jump around, and I want to show you some other verses tonight as well. So uh, turn, turn, with them, uh, turn with me to as many of them as you can to kind of stay up and stay uh, active in it. Uh, and just follow along as we do that. But the first thing that we find is that worldliness is characterized by following your lusts. We already gave you a little bit of a description of what lust is, but your lust that he's talking about is referring to living after the flesh, the old man, the old nature. 1 John chapter 2, in fact, turn over there if you would. 1 John chapter 2, in verse number, and, and you know verse 15, 16, 17, but I think it's worth looking at verse number 16 again because he really describes the lusts that characterize the worldliness of, of a worldly Christian. But he says in verse number 16, for all that is in the world, and then he describes it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, he, he says there in James chapter, James chapter 4 and verse number 1, From whence comes wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. So he says those lusts are warring in our members. There's a battle going on in the life of every believer between the flesh, the old nature, the old man, and our new nature, the spiritual nature, uh, the spirit. He talks about those wars and fightings, a carnal man has a lust for winning and conquering. Our flesh does not like to lose. So I fight so hard. If our flesh didn't care, we'd win every spiritual battle we ever face. 
But our flesh does not like to lose, and so it's going to fight. It's going to war. This carnal man, this carnal Christian that has this uh, desire to follow his lusts, has a lust for revenge. I mean, look at all the things that he talks about, wars and fightings. What brings those about? Well, you did this to me, so I have a really strong desire to get you back. And I'm going to do whatever I have to, to to get you back for that. To live carnally is to follow the inclination of the flesh. In fact, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. To follow the inclination of the flesh. That is the easiest thing to do as a Christian. To live spiritually is to follow the inclination of the Spirit. That's probably the hardest thing to do as a Christian. Because naturally, our flesh does not want to do that. And that's where that war comes from, that battle that goes on. But Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. But there, there it is. There you have it. If you don't want to follow the flesh, then follow the Spirit. If you don't want to be drawn away after the flesh, then walk in the Spirit. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, spirit, Spirit against the flesh. That's that battle that's going on that takes place in every Christian. And you probably heard this before. I heard this a long time ago, and I've heard it several times since. But an American Indian that got saved... Uh, was, was talking about this battle between the flesh and the spirit as a, a fight between a black dog and a white dog. And he said, I always know which dog is going to win because the one that I feed the most always wins that battle. And that's exactly the way that it is with our flesh and our spirit, right? The one we feed the most is going to win. It, 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 you think about that practically. If you're sitting down there, uh, watching things on television that are, that are ungodly, you're feeding that flesh. And the next time something comes up as far as a battle, you're much more likely to give into the flesh because that's what you've been feeding. Versus try, try sitting there reading your Bible and having prayer, and then a battle comes up and you just give into the flesh. More than likely, you're not going to do that because you've been feeding the, the things of the Spirit. But there's a battle that's going on in between us and a, and a worldly Christian, and that's what James is describing here in James chapter 4 and verse number 1, is characterized by following your lust. So how do we feed the spiritual man? Pretty, pretty well known, I think, but it's worth, it's worth repeating because we forget it so often, but by reading the Bible, by meditating on the Bible and on the Word of God, by studying the Bible, by prayer, by communion with Christ. By exercising faith, by being in church, by having that Christian fellowship, right? When you're around other people who are also fighting against the flesh, it becomes a lot easier for you to do it, especially, uh, that's that's why it's so important to be here in the middle of the week on a Wednesday night, right? You, You go from Sunday to Sunday, that's a long time to try to fight that on your own, you know? And, and you can come in and not get anything out of a Wednesday night service, the whole point is to give you that charge to keep you going so you, can get, so you can get to Sunday. Because the flesh fights hard. Flesh plays dirty. And it's a difficult battle. But you avoid those morally tempting situations. Avoid the evil associations. That's how you walk in the spirit. That's how we feed the spiritual man. How do you feed the flesh? Do the exact opposite. Neglect all of those things. Don't read the Bible. Don't meditate on it. Don't study 
don't have that Christian fellowship, don't go to church, don't spend time in prayer, don't actively avoid the things that you know are going to be temptations to you. Give in to all of it. That's how you do that. That's, that's the easy part. It's easy to give in to the flesh. It's hard to, to walk in the Spirit. Sure, sinful lusts war in our members, but we don't have to yield to them. In fact, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. See, because God has given every believer the power to lay aside the deeds of the old man and to put on the new man, which is Christ. He would not tell us to do it if there was not a way for us to do it. He wouldn't tell us to walk in the Spirit if there was no way for us to walk in the Spirit. Paul takes a lot of, he talks a lot about that in Romans 6, Romans 8, Romans 13, and, and, and to take some time to go through those passages, but what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? That, that all of the passage in Romans 6, 8, and 13 is, is what Paul is talking about in a lot of those passages. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, he says this, that you put off concerning the former conversation, former lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's what we have to put on. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Every Christian would be spiritual. Every Christian would fight against their lust. Every Christian would, would walk in the spirit. Every Christian would defeat the old man every single day. It's not an easy thing. But God would not tell us to do it if there was no way for us to do it. So it's a battle that we fight. But what side you feed is the side that's going to win. So worldliness is characterized by following your lust. Number two, back in James chapter 4, we see this in verse number two. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. The second thing is that worldliness is characterized by fighting. He, he really even says that in, in, in the first verse. From whence comes wars and fightings among you, come they not hence, even of your lust that were in your members. Then he says it again, basically. You kill, you desire to have, you fight and war, can't have, all of those things. See, the, the worldly Christian is not at peace. God, God designed the Christian life to be a life of peace, to have that, that perfect peace that passes all understanding, like the Bible says. But a worldly Christian is going to lust after the things that he shouldn't have, and his desires are never satisfied. The Bible talks about that in Proverbs 27. He said, what I can't get through rivalry and contention and strife, I'll take it a step farther. I'll go fight for those things. That's what a, that's what a worldly Christian does. But it's a, it's a carnal Christian that often causes trouble in the family. It causes trouble in the church. and causes trouble uh, at work. and causes trouble in society. It's the carnal Christians that do that. He's not at peace because he's feeding his own uh, flesh and pursuing his old lustful self rather than walking in the Spirit and surrendering to and trusting in God. In fact, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. He, he talks about this. And we, we were just there. I probably could have had you stay there. But Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19, he gives us about a, a, a complete list of these things as we can, as he can in verse number 19, Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest or are shown, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, 
emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But all of those things are works of the flesh. We want a list of sins that we need to watch out for. There's a list of them. But notice, I mean, look, look, at the, look at what he says in verse number 20. Look how many of those have to do with fighting. He says hatred and variant, emulations, that's, that's jealousies, wrath, strife, seditions, which is divisions, heresies, so many different things. In fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, he doesn't continue the list necessarily, but he sure uh, talks about some of the same things that are on this list uh, and really describes it again, that, that a carnal Christian is characterized, and worldliness is characterized by fighting. A carnal Christian is just not at peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in, in verse number 3. And, and, and the Corinthian church, Paul had to get on them about a lot of things, and, and, a, and a good bit of what he got onto them about was their division within the church. But verse 3 of chapter 3, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? That's what he's saying. You're walking like, you're walking like the unsaved. The, the, the divisions and the strife and, and all of that stuff. He said that, that's, oh, that only comes about because you're carnal Christians. Carnality is that worldliness. And when that worldliness creeps in, you're going to live as a carnal Christian and there's going to be fightings. Their strife was a result of that carnality. They were striving for carnal purposes, not in pursuit of the truth. There's a, there's a time to strive. Peter did it. Paul did it. There's a time to strive when you're striving for the right things. But they were not in pursuit of the truth and godliness. They were in pursuit of their selfish interests. And that is a mark of somebody who is a carnal Christian. And the devil often uses carnal people to ruin churches. Um, and I'm not telling you this because it's a problem now, but if we aren't careful, it could very easily become a problem. You, you think, well, I would never... Get, get, get backslidden enough, live in the flesh enough, become carnal as a Christian enough, and eventually you might be the one that's causing those divisions, right? They, they have strong opinions, but their opinions are carnal rather than spiritual. They're not based on God's word, rightly divided. They, and, and, and those who, who, who follow after those things form cliques and, and clubs within the church, and if you're not part of this group, then you don't belong here, and all these divisions and everything else that can, that can come up. They're men followers rather than Christ followers. That's usually how a lot of that stuff happened. But they're self-willed. and They're not going to submit to God-called leaders. They don't have good spiritual discernment, which is where most of this starts in the first place. You're walking after the flesh. You're not going to have the discernment of a godly Christian. And you're going to make foolish choices. You're going to say foolish things. You're going to do foolish things that cause divisions, and you're going to think that you're right. Oh, I have every right to say this. They shouldn't be doing that. We, we don't need to change the color of the chairs. That's ridiculous. That's a waste of money, whatever it happens to be, right? And they're going to be so convinced that they're right. I'm telling you, it sounds like a joke, but I've heard of church splits happening over the color of the carpet. They got new carpet, and they couldn't agree on what color the carpet they wanted it to be. And, and the church split over that. I mean, what a foolish thing, you know? I, I mean, over the carpet? Is that a spiritual issue? 
But that's what happens when you have carnal Christians. Now, let me address a little phrase that James uses before we go on. Go back to James chapter 4. Because this, this you, have to, you have to understand the context um, and, and who James is talking to, particularly here, to understand what he's saying. He said, you lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. And when James mentions those who kill, he's not talking about true believers here. The Bible says that the murderer does not have eternal life dwelling in him. He says that in 1 John 3, 15. But keep in mind that James addresses the Jews in general that were scattered abroad. Isn't that what we talked about in the very first verse of James chapter 1? Not all of them were saved. And so he's addressing a broad audience. Matthew Henry says this, The Jews were a very seditious people and had therefore frequent wars with the Romans. And they were a very quarrelsome, divided people, often fighting among themselves, Hereupon, our apostle informs them that the origin of their wars and fightings was not, as they pretended, a true zeal for their country and for the honor of God, but that their prevailing lusts were the cause of all of it. So people in governments all want to talk about world peace, right? Everybody wants to have world peace. Uh, can't everybody just get along? But they have no uh, ability to address the root of war, which is man's sin, and as long as there are sinners in this world, there's going to be fighting, and there's going to be strife, and there's going to be war. And the same thing is true with Christians who are worldly. Peace is not going to come on the earth until sin is dealt with. Peace will not be in a church until the sin is dealt with, and peace will not be in the Christian's life until that sin is dealt with. And that's what worldliness and carnality brings about. And so worldliness is, number one, characterized by following your lusts, Worldliness is characterized by fighting. And then also, at the end of James chapter 4 and verse number 2, he brings up another characteristic of worldliness, and that is uh, worldliness is characterized by a neglect of prayer. He says, ye have not because ye ask not. A worldly Christian is not a praying Christian. You want to know if you're worldly or not? What is your prayer life like? Because a worldly Christian is not a praying Christian. Typically, somebody who is carnal and worldly does not have intercessory prayer, does not have a time with God where he gets alone with him and spends that time. You probably won't find him faithfully attending prayer meetings unless there's some sort of obligation that he has to fulfill or if somebody's watching him for whatever reason. And, and the praying he does is, is largely selfish. By the way, uh, this verse gives us a, a fundamental principle about how to get prayers answered, and that's simply to pray. He says, you have not because you ask not. How many times have you uh, heard somebody say that, maybe in a job situation or something, man, I didn't, I didn't know that we could get that. Well, you didn't ask, <laughs> right? If you had asked me, I'd have told you. Yeah, they're all free. Take them. You never asked me, right? It's the same way that God is. How come you didn't answer this prayer? You didn't ask. You know, it was a desire that you had or a lust that you had or whatever, but you didn't ask. You have not because you ask not, he says. And so the more I pray, the more I'm going to get answers to those prayers. Turn over to Psalm 84. See, a, a lot of times instead of praying, we do a lot of other things. We worry. We fret about it. We scheme. How can I make this thing work out? Right? How, many, how many times have we done that in our lives? Scheming to see what we can work out instead of just going to God about it in prayer. Fearing. We do that all the time. 
Instead of praying, we fear. Doubt. Instead of, instead of praying, we doubt. Or even praying, we doubt. All right? God says you have not because you ask not. But God delights in giving us what we want. He says in Psalm 84 and verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. What a promise. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. You're not seeing answers to prayers? Maybe you're not walking uprightly. Maybe you're asking for the wrong things. If you're praying for things that, that you're lusting after instead of the things that God wants you to pray for, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Turn over to Matthew 7. This is a passage that I'm sure is pretty familiar to you when it comes to uh, not necessarily parables, but things that Jesus said. Matthew 7 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to pull one verse out. It's not taking it out of context. It's just not taking time to explain the entire context, but you understand it, I, I think. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 11. He says, If ye then, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Right? That, the whole thing. If you ask a stone, are you going to give him a, a, a... If you ask a piece of bread, are you going to give him a stone? If you ask an egg, are you going to give him a serpent? No, because you know how to give good things to your kids. And you're evil. You're You're flesh. And even you as flesh know how to give good things to your children. How much more do you think your heavenly father wants to give you the things that you're asking of him? So it's not that God's just holding back or just won't do it. We're not asking for the right things, or in a lot of cases, we're, we're not even asking. It almost seems like a contradiction here, right? God tells us that, that we have not because we lust, and then he seems to tell us that we have not because we, because we ask not. We have to say then that wanting is not inherently wrong. Nothing wrong with wanting. He said you have not because you ask not. What's wrong is the wrong kind of lust that we have, a strong desire, right? And that what we said lust is. If you're lusting after the wrong things, of course God's not going to give those things to you. Lust that makes us want something for ourselves. It's the desire to have, the desire to fight in war, the envy, the adultery. But a strong desire is a great help to prayer, actually. And turn over to James chapter 5. I don't know if you're still there in chapter 4. We're going to get to James chapter 5 in a little bit, and we'll talk about this uh, uh, in a little bit more detail. But I think this, is, this goes right along with exactly what we're talking about in James chapter 5 in verse number 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. That earnestly is the same thing as lusting, if you will. It's a strong desire for something. What did he pray for? He prayed that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. What did he want? He wanted it to not rain. How did he get what he wanted? He asked with a strong desire. He prayed earnestly, the Bible says. That word means with depth of feeling. What right thing do you want in your life? Use prayer to get it. See, the most important thing is that it must be for others and not necessarily for you. If it's, if it's something for you or your purposes or your desires or your lusts, then God says you're not going to get it. But if you're praying for others or praying for something that's going to lift up Jesus Christ, uh, that goes right into what he mentions there in verse number 3 of James chapter 4 and right into the next point. 
He says, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. The fourth thing is that worldliness is characterized by self-centeredness. That's exactly what he's talking about in that verse. You ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. A worldly Christian is self-centered, doesn't die to self, doesn't submit himself to Christ and to the Great Commission. He doesn't live for others. Even his prayers, the Bible says here in James chapter 3, essentially, are self-centered. Prayer is not some magic bullet to make you happy. It's not some magic potion that you just have to uh, uh, enact or enable, and, and the next thing you know, all your dreams come true. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is God's divinely ordered method of obtaining what we greatly desire so that we can give to other people. And as Christians, our desires should not be for ourselves. They should be for others and what they need. That's where our desires should be. Yes, use your desires to motivate you to pray, but start with the right desires in the first place. Right, Psalm 37, 4, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I don't think that means that God will give you everything you desire. I think that, God, that means that God will change your desires. You delight yourself in him, and he'll show you the things that you should desire. He'll give you the things that you should delight in. But praying with the purpose of consuming the answer yourself will be unanswered prayer. See, God, does, God doesn't answer prayer for things pertaining to your lust meaning things that are sensual sensual, or things that are evil, that are contrary to God's will. And there's a lot of reasons for unanswered prayer, and this is one of them. But, but, but take a young man, for example, who's, who prays for a, a certain kind of car or a certain kind of woman that he can use to, to show off or, or whatever. I mean, any number of things like that. Or if he prays that he can be accepted into a, a, a worldly university fraternity. He wants to be a part of this fraternity, so he's begging God, asking God to, to allow him to be accepted. It's not thing, those, those are things that, that are being consumed upon your lust. God's not going to answer that, right? Or praying for a job that goes against God's will. Some of that, uh, you know, praying for a job in Hollywood or praying for a job, you know, that, that is associated with serving alcohol or those kind of things or praying for money to spend on the lust of the flesh and on the things of the world. All right? That's, those are the kind of prayers that God is not going to answer. Those are the kind of prayers that are in vain because you're, you're, you're consuming it upon your lust, is what he says. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. They're professing Christians who pray for God's help in their corrupt business. Right? I, I, I've, I've, uh, uh, I, I've heard... People say before, well, I have to lie a little bit, close the deal, but I'm sure God understands, right? You're, you're asking God to bless your lies? That's, that's asking amiss. God's not going to give you a successful business. He's not going to answer that prayer if you're asking amiss or consuming it upon your own lusts, right? There are Christians that take other Christians to court in lawsuits that are contrary to God's word, and then they ask God to give them the victory in that lawsuit. A lot of people neglect church for their own for their business in disobedience to God's word, and they're going to ask God to bless their business. You're consuming it upon your own lust. You're asking amiss, and those are that's praying in vain. Albert Barnes wrote this. He said it becomes becomes everyone who prays for worldly prosperity and for success in business to examine his motives with the closest scrutiny. 
Nowhere is deception more likely to creep in than into such prayers. Nowhere are we more likely to be mistaken in regard to our real motives than when we go before God and ask for success in worldly employments. Nothing wrong with asking God to help you in business. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But you better make sure all the business practices that you have are above board. You better make sure you're doing everything that's pleasing to God. And, and asking him for success in business so you can give to missions or so you can do you know, more for his work. That's, that's the kind of things that we're asking God for that is not asking amiss, that's not consuming it upon our own lusts. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. See, self, self-centered praying is no different than what's practiced by the world. Think about all the different religions. We were just in India. We saw Hinduism and all of this stuff. Those that follow these pagan religions go to their temples carrying sacrifices, asking for, you know, uh, praying for wealth and success and good luck and health and prosperous marriages for their children and all of that type of thing. And we saw it over and over and over. India has thousands of different gods. And I got to talking to, I I think I was actually talking to Brother Nitin about it, and I said, hey, how do they pick? Because almost almost every vehicle, they have a god on their dashboard. They have a little mat laid out, and, and the God is sitting right there. It's attached inside their car, and that God just goes with them everywhere. And I said, how do they decide which God is, is going to be the one that they pick? And he said, well, somewhere along the line, they prayed and asked that God for something, and they got what they were asking for, and so they associate that with that God answering their prayer, and so that's the God that they worship. I mean, how is that any different than us when we're doing the exact same thing? We're just praying to the true God in the exact same way that the world does it. It's all about me and mine. See, Jesus, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 6, he's, he said that sinners love those that love them. They do good to them which do good to them, right? But in contrast to that, the prayers of a spiritual man are not only for himself and his loved ones, but also for others, even for his enemies. First Timothy chapter 2, look, look what this says in verse number 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. That's what somebody who is spiritual versus somebody who is carnal and worldly is going to do. Not gonna, you're not gonna, I'm not praying for that guy, right? I've heard people say before, you know, uh, this is when Obama was the president. I pray every day that God would kill Obama and send him to hell. That, that's not praying for all men. Right? God can do that, that work. We, we, we pray every night. And, and when, when the kids pray, they pray every night that God would save Joe Biden. Right? He's a soul that needs Jesus Christ. You want to see him change and turn around his life and change his policies and everything else, let him accept Christ as his Savior. Right? He, he goes on and he talks about praying for men that are in power. Praying for kings and leaders and all those. If we're not doing that, then who's going to? And if we're not asking God to to lead and guide and direct them, then how can we expect that they're going to do anything close to what, what we would want them to do and what God would want them to do? We're to be in this business of laboring earnestly in prayer for others. Uh, let's go over. I just want to look at two more verses and we're done. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. That's something that we need to examine, because worldliness is characterized by that self-centeredness. Are you self-centered in the way that you pray? Think about 
And I know that, that we all have prayer lists and things that we, that we pray through, and, but I wonder how many of those things on your prayer list are things that are related to you. God, help me too, and help me too. Now, if you're praying that God would help you to be a better witness, you're praying for others, right? God, help me to be a, a, a light in this dark world. That's, that's praying for others. God, help me too. You're praying for, for others, but, but God, help me to make a lot of money, and help me to do this, and help me to have that, and help me to... Right? How, many, how many of our prayers are self-centered prayers? How many of the things that we do are, are revolving around us? That's a, that's a mark of worldliness. Look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. It doesn't have anything to do with us. Praying always with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Again, we're to be in this business of laboring earnestly in prayer for other people. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 3. He says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. See, our motivations and our desires in prayer cannot be a selfish type of lust. It has to be a prayer of asking for God's will to be done in your life, asking for God's will to be done in the life of others, and, and the proper method of achieving that is through prayer. But he says, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. We're going to stop there for tonight. But we're saying, we're talking about the description of worldliness, and we're going to continue on with that, and we're going to take some time on verse number four, because there's a lot there. And like I said, I, I really believe that verse number four is the, uh, is the focal point of all of this, and that, that, this, that this whole passage hinges on. But worldliness is characterized by following your lusts. Worldliness is characterized by fighting. Worldliness is characterized by a neglect of prayer. And of course, then worldliness is characterized by self-centeredness. And so... Uh, very, very important things. We're going to talk about this idea that worldliness is characterized by friendship of the world. And uh, that's, I mean, that seems like it goes without saying, but there's a lot, there's a lot there in verse number four, verse number five, and really even verse number six to unpack. And I didn't want to rush through it, so we'll get back into that next week. But let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be done for tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for an opportunity that we have to be here tonight. I pray that you just Continue to use us, God. I pray that you'd use us for, for your glory and that you'd be pleased by everything that we do uh, individually, as families, as a church. God, may we move forward this year for you uh, so that you can be lifted up more in our lives and people would see Jesus Christ in us more than ever before. Well, thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.